Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's podcast, Insights. This series celebrates experiences and perspectives of ASHP's diverse membership and examines the leadership and practice journeys of our members. This series also explores how to integrate considerations for diversity, equity, and inclusion into their pharmacy practice. My name is Dr. Tiffany Wingfield, and I am the Director of Member Relations at the ASHP Leadership Center here at ASHP. I will be your host today. Today's discussion is part one of a two-part series on the role of pharmacy in addressing health disparities in underserved populations. And I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Vivian Bradley Johnson, Senior Vice President of Clinical Services at Parkland Health and ASHP board member, as well as Dr. Sebastian Hamilton, Chief Pharmacy Officer for Operations and Community and Ambulatory Partnerships, as well as PGY1 and PGY2 Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership and Residency Program Director at Boston Medical Center. He is also a professional member of the Massachusetts Board of Registration and Pharmacy. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for inviting us today. Glad to have you both. As we get started in our discussion today, I would like to ask each of you to share your perspectives on the challenges we face in our nation on removing health disparities and improving health and wellness in underserved communities. Let's start with you, Vivian. Thank you, Dr. Wingfield, for inviting me again. And um, I'm just pleased to be with Dr. Hamilton today. Regarding my perspective on the challenges as we, we face as a nation in trying to eradicate or reduce health disparities, I tend to focus, I think we need to focus on really four areas, and that is access to providers, access to medications, access to information, and the cost of medical care. Those are the areas I think that we are having challenges. Uh, let me just begin with my perspective around access to providers. As you know, we've all heard of the challenges with provider workforce shortages. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was highlighted. We, we actually saw an expansion of, of healthcare provider shortages. Um, and so we've been able to see that as a result of that, many hospitals in, in underserved communities have closed. Actually, my hospital where I grew up actually is no longer available in that, that city for uh, the community. And that has hurt us tremendously. Also, providers that are no longer practicing in these uninsured or underserved areas. So access to providers is a challenge. Also, access to medications. We've seen that medical care has advanced. However, the cost of the medications are so expensive that many of our patients aren't able to afford them. Uh, some of our patients are having to choose between feeding their families and actually getting their medications refilled. Elderly patients are having to make those types of decisions too. So uh, that's a challenge for us. The other piece is getting information about our patients. Uh, oftentimes we are challenged with 
having to see patients in a short period of time, and we don't have the opportunity to, to spend time and ask information about what else is actually impacting your ability to actually get the care that you need. You know, patients don't show up for visits and, and we don't ask, go back and ask, why were you a no-show? Uh, it could be many of our patients don't have the transportation or the times that we're offering the service is, is a time that they have to work. My patients, the patients in our communities, many of them, you know, they have to go to work so they can't really take off and, and go to, to appointments. So what we've done here at Parkland, we've looked at services and said, okay, we may need to offer that service at an, a, uh, a later time in the evening or on the weekend so that we would make it more available, accessible to our, our patients. And, and finally, the cost of medical care. I mean, we have heard that um, it continues to go up. So for our uninsured, underinsured, uh, we are seeing that some of them are not able to pay the co-pays that are necessary. And also just, we often say in order to get this treatment, you must put $1,500 down for this treatment. Many don't have that. And so that's, that's a challenge for us um, if we're going to talk about reducing healthcare disparities. Those are very, um, you've shed some light on some considerable challenges, Vivian. What are, what are your thoughts, Sebastian? Uh, yeah, definitely thank you, uh, Dr. Winfield. And it's also a pleasure to be here with you, Dr. Johnson. And I'm actually sitting back for a moment and reflecting and, and absorbing what you just said, because it's pretty profound. I mean, I even liked how you unpacked it in a nice systemic way to think about how do we at least begin to attack this, 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 this ongoing issue, right? And so when I think about it also, is what kind of em empowers me or, or emboldens me to work here at BMC. Um, we look at health disparities with every patient encounter. And I look at it in three ways is how we address it, not just here at BMC, but in general, is that you have to have the understanding of why these health disparities exist. Why do they exist? How did we get here? It didn't happen overnight. And it's going to not be resolved overnight. It's going to take very uh, a lot of patience, time, and understanding to know how do we begin to start to address healthcare disparities. And it should be a very open and honest and frank conversation. Um, should not be any punches held on how we got here for underrepresented minorities to fall into this bucket consistently year over year, exacerbated by the outcomes. Um, put forth by the pandemic of COVID. I mean, we know what happened there, who was impacted the most. So we, we know some things, but we just don't know everything because it's a very complex problem. So I think first understanding, and we do that at BMC, very uh, intentional of in making sure that we understand why these things happening. And then, you know, have a level of cultural competency in this space, right? I think Dr. Johnson mentioned, you know, patients having to choose between childcare or picking up their prescription. That's real. And it happens every moment for some of our patients as well. And we try to remove that. But you have to have that cultural competency and understand that to that person, that's a very logical and reasonable option because their self-care is not put before their family care or other obligations that may put them out on the street if they don't take the necessary action immediately. And so having training around health for healthcare providers to understand cultural competency is something we've done here. And we, we do it ongoing because you have to understand your patients, their language, their, their culture, 
their norms, how do you approach them, what language to use with them. Even if you are a uh, non-binary person, you really need to be able to meet the person where they are and understand what keeps them motivated. And if you don't do that, no matter what you do, you're not going to be successful. So I think we do a fair job of approaching the patient in a way to meet them on their terms so that we can begin to break through with that understanding, to understand how do we get here and why do we get here. And then have some level, the second thing is having a level of intentionality about what you want to do. You you cannot be shy in this space. You have to be intentional and unapologetically intentional about this is what I want to do. I want to take a cohort of African-American patients with an A1C above 10, and I want to get them down to a six. And here are the five interventions I want to do that. And you need to not really say, well, how come you aren't looking at other patient populations? You say, well, we will get to those, but this is the high-risk patient population right now. This is what we want to focus on. Um, you know, we need you to really support this initiative. And, you know, any healthcare provider who knows statistics and went to pharmacy school or any um, healthcare school knows the statistics when it comes to African-Americans, um, Latino, underrepresented. I mean, you, we can go down the list. And so what are we trying to look for and what? how do we measure success? You have to understand, like, what are you trying to drive? Because you're not going to solve everything. You got to get to the social determinants of health, which I mentioned is a very complex, multifaceted issue of um, removing health disparities. And so understanding that is going to be key to a successful outcome because you need to know what does success look like for that cohort of patients. And then finally, I would say education. If something is successful or not, you still can learn something from that work that you've done to make sure that the outcomes at least are trying to drive to a, an intended goal. Um, make sure that you talk to the patient and provide them information back. You talk to the healthcare providers and provide them information back as well on what would well, what are areas for improvement, what should we do more of, and what should we do less of. And again, you cannot take on everything. You have to be very tactical and strategic about focusing on one or two initiatives that you know you can get to an outcome in a relatively um, quick amount of time, and then just stay with it, and obviously be prepared to make some changes as you go along the process. But you got to be very intentional and focused on one or two initiatives to even begin to start to remove health disparity. I think you both um, provided some like invaluable nuggets, especially you know thinking back the four challenges that you outlined, Vivian: the access to providers, medication, and information, and then the cost of medical care, and then. Uh, Sebastian, you looking at the cultural competence and education and intentionality, those are key. Like, you, you know, you have to be very intentional. And I think cultural competence is something that is often overlooked or underestimated that impacts so many other things. So thank you both for those perspectives. Uh, Dr. Johnson, I wanted to uh, move on and ask you a question. I know from your past work, you, you shared um, at different national conferences that Parkland Health provides extensive programs to underserved communities and that pharmacy plays a significant role. Can you share what your strategies have been to be successful and maybe provide a little focus on the efforts in areas of diabetes and hypertension? Yes, yes. First, what I'd like to do is just for those who may not know about Parkland Health. Let me just share a little bit about, uh, about the uh, where I work. Uh, Parkland Health is a level one trauma facility, and we are actually we actually serve as the safety net hospital or um, healthcare system for those that are in the Dallas, Texas areas or the county. We're licensed as an eight hundred and eighty two bed hospital. Uh, we have 
16 community-based primary care clinics. We have five school-based clinics. We also have mobile uh, vans that actually go out and do uh, immunizations, as well as we have our mobile mammography, we have hospital at home services, and we actually go out and um, provide care to the homeless. So, I mean, we, we are definitely out and about uh, and in all with all of those services, we have pharmacy that is supporting and assisting to provide as a care provider. Uh, one of the things that we are, because of our population, we are fortunate to be able to uh, be a, served as a, or be recognized as a 340B approved um, institution. So we have several 340B approved clinics, which allows Parkland to be able to purchase or procure drugs, outpatient drugs at a discount uh, for our patients. And the savings that we get from the discount, we actually put back into the organization to provide services for our patients in the community. Uh, for example, we have implemented an outpatient parental therapy program where pharmacists are in the clinics and we have patients, instead of staying in the hospital to receive their antibiotic therapy, we're able to actually send them home and they come back in. The 340B savings has helped us to be able to offer that program and we've been able to eliminate or reduce the number of hospital days. In addition, we um, have pharmacists to do penicillin allergy testing. And as a result of the 340B savings, that has helped us also um, to reduce the number of uh, medications that a patient may be tried on uh, if they're admitted to the hospital. Uh, the one thing that I think is unique is that we have clinical pharmacy specialists who are also working very closely with our medical staff. And they serve as really um, extenders. They have collaborative practice agreements whereby that they can see patients in the clinics also. So many of our pharmacists, we have 18 um, clinical specialists that are seeing patients and they're seeing patients for to help manage their diabetes, to help manage their hypertension. Uh, we actually collect data on a regular basis where we're able to provide on an annual basis the success and the outcomes from that those uh, pharmacists practicing in the clinics. And we've been able to show that a pharmacist has been able to uh, really reduce the A1C of our patients in a very, uh, let's say, shorter time frame than many of our other professionals. Um, as Dr. Hamilton talked about, we've had patients to come in, start with a A1C of 10%, and uh, we're able to get them down to 6.7 or under 6 just um, after six visits. So we have been able to show that it is of value to, uh, to have pharmacists on the team. And um, we've been able to, I would say, increase access to patients because we don't have a lot of uh, providers that are able to see all the patients and stay with them to manage their therapy. Our pharmacists are able to assist in that role. And so again, we've been able to help in, in that way. And one other thing I want to say is that 
uh, the 340B program is, is very integral to our ability in many organizations so that we can provide those other services to patients and um, work toward decreasing the healthcare disparities. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Uh, achieving success, especially in the realms of, you think, diabetes and hypertension, definitely involves a multifaceted approach in services, many services. So thank you for sharing Parkland Health's best practices and how your pharmacy's commitment is improving health outcomes in these underserved areas. And I, I want to share, we just recently, I'm going to say within the last uh, couple of years, we started and extending, you've heard of the deaths that occur postpartum with patients. Many of our patients have hypertension and um, we've, there's a study where it showed that 18 deaths occur per 100,000 births. And so at, at Parkland in Dallas, we have implemented a program that's called uh, EMCAP, where we're working on reducing the mortality rate for those at-risk patients uh, that are new mothers. So we have a pharmacist that actually uh, is a part of that team that serves as um, helps with educating, calling the patients to see how they're doing on their therapy. So they are also involved with helping to manage hypertension in those patients as well. So I just wanted to share that additional service. Excellent, excellent. If I could ask my next question to Sebastian, I know you are invested in developing a strong workforce and pharmacy that understands the needs and is equipped to lead and provide the necessary clinical care for these underserved communities. Can you share with us your vision for pharmacy teams and your strategies and being an advocate and mentor to your team and peers? Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Wingfield. Thanks for the question. Uh, again, I was reflecting on Dr. Johnson's answer, especially when she gave a profile of the organization that she works for the health system. Because, you know, it's, it's similar here. I mean, we're Boston Medical Center, um, Level 1 Trauma Center, New England's largest safety net hospital. Um, definitely 60% of my patients speak a second language other than ling English. Um, about, I think, anywhere from 50 to 60% also is below the federal poverty guidelines. We're a 340B institution. Pharmacy brings great value to the organization because, as you know, being a a safety net hospital with uh, whether state or, or federal government as your primary payers, your margins are very thin. So through the 340B program, we can be fiscally viable, which we're very happy of. And then we have uh, a upwards of 14 community health centers embedded in the community as well to meet patients where they are so they can get connected to our services. And we even have pharmacies in those because, again, the level of care we provide is a little bit more intentional and out there in support of wraparound services, we like to call it, than just typically just having a patient own pretty much their own prescription care. Because our patients are a challenge for so many reasons. And we step up and make sure that we close some of those gaps. So it was just good to hear, you know, obviously, Dr. Johnson's organization is pretty much facing the same challenges and pressures that we are as well. Um, but when I think about, you know, my, my quote unquote vision, it kind of uh, is multifaceted as well, where I, I think of who our patients are. That's kind of where it starts, right? You have to vision yourself about who are your patients and understanding who they are. And it goes back to kind of my earlier comment around cultural competency. Um, I myself have taught not only pharmacy, but many providers across the organization on what cultural competency is. 
uh, me and a colleague, we actually presented this information and shared some very good examples of what cultural competency is and what it is not and why it's important and why the outcomes are better when a patient feels more uh, appreciated for who they are versus trying to model after what the organization wants. And so having a, an organization that really embodies that kind of philosophy, uh, we've seen the results of that. Um, so again, I, I reference back to the community health center. So when COVID hit, you could imagine our community was the ones who really absorbed a lot of the misinformation and didn't get vaccinated. One of the things I am proud of is that because we were in the communities long before pandemic, long before any of this happened, we had community credibility of supporting our patients. They trusted us. And so when we said get vaccinated, they didn't say yes right away. Of course not. But they did think about it. And we were intentional about putting leaders and physicians and pharmacists and any healthcare provider of color in front of the groups so they can take our word for it versus just another individual. Again, I always say it doesn't have to necessarily mean we look and sound like them, but it helps. It helps because I understand the whole reason behind Tuskegee. In fact, when someone mentioned that as one of the reasons why they didn't want to get vaccinated, I said, but did you actually know this? You know, a lot of people get it confused with the Tuskegee Airmen, but did you know it's a gun? Like I, and when I broke it down, I kind of co-signed what they were saying and actually educated them more on why they should not. But that built credibility with them to realize, okay, let me listen. He understands what I'm coming from. Let me now listen to what, what he's saying. So the vision is really being available for community at any given time, not just during the pandemic. What is your need? Is it housing? Is it jobs? Is it pretty much uh, financial? Uh, Mobility, those are the things that are key in our community. And so Boston Medical Center in the condition of pharmacy, we try to make sure we embody that and provide that vision uh, for our pharmacy teams and make sure you meet patients where they are, that you get through the barriers. Um, you know, one of our credos here is move mountains and our pharmacy team literally do it every day. You cannot work in a level one trauma center sick in that hospital with homeless patients, um, substance use disorder patients and not move mountains and have a vision of everyone who is deserving of care will get it here, no matter of race, creed, sexual orientation, socioeconomic, it doesn't matter. You're a patient, you're a human, you are to get treated with the best care that we can provide. And we do that every day. So that's kind of the vision that we continue to embody in pharmacy. And then definitely making sure that our patients respond to that and keep it going. And the strategies for advocate and mentor uh, to my team and peers is, is, is interesting as well. Uh, and I kind of smile when I think about that is, um, you know, a lot of times the decision makers of our processes, procedures, and programs aren't underrepresented minorities, aren't people who have been impacted by healthcare disparities. They don't have uh, a good feeling of what does housing insecurity mean, spousal abuse, um, socioeconomic challenges, um, single mothers. I can go all like they have no inkling of what those things mean. And how something as simple as coming up from the full when you're discharged to walk down to the pharmacy to pick up a medication or antibiotic before you leave the hospital, that the fact that they have to come down to the pharmacy and wait in line is a barrier to care in of itself. Like they have no, no insight into that. And that's fine because that's not their vantage point. But it is my vantage point. Like I grew up in Harlem and in the Bronx. So I know the struggle and, and I was in the struggle. And so my advocacy is more around before we do this, Let's understand the impact of what it's going to do to our patient population, because this is what can happen. An organization can change from being patient-centered 
to now more physically responsible. And you have to have both. Make no mistake, you have to have the finances in order. So no, no one's really uh, challenging that. But you have to be very careful because if you go too far in one direction or the other, you have a situation where you are actually not introducing healthcare disparities and barriers for the very reasons that you're trying to be uh, fiscally responsible. So you want to, you know, I, I, and, I, and I can give some examples, but bottom line is just be very careful that you aren't unintentionally introducing um, healthcare disparities. So I kind of bring that out. I'm very vocal uh, in a very professional, respectful manner on those individuals who have no insight into what this means. I said, before we do this, let's look at them and see what the data shows. So those are the things that I, I try to advocate for and be a mentor to my team and, and just tell my team, I don't care what race you are. If you feel that something is not right, just speak up about it. We, we have an ear. You should be comfortable and have a platform to speak out against healthcare disparities because ultimately it's our patient. And we want for our patients what we want for ourselves, which is you know happiness, shelter, we all have the same inherent needs. And so we need to make sure that we are speaking up and advocating for our patients when we can. That was a lot to unpack and so much that you said, just, you know, I'm thinking back on the things that you said, and I wholeheartedly agree and believe that you mentioned that community credibility, that's such a strong term and that cultural competency and just creating an environment for your team that they're educated and then they feel empowered and motivated to, you know, speak up and provide the best possible care and move those mountains that you said. So thank you so much for that. If I could add one, one more shameless plug is it's really our health equity accelerator. Like I challenge and I welcome anyone listening to this podcast to look up via Boston Medical Center, specifically our health equity accelerator, the work we're doing there to be intentional in this space. And then the second one is Dr. Thea James. You've got to look this person up. Um, she is the Mother Teresa of who we are as Boston Medical Center. She's out in the community. She's a woman of color. She's a physician. And you know, her community credibility is through the roof. And so she has government, um, obviously, buy-in, and she speaks for us. And she is the truth. I mean, I, I'm very impressed every time I speak with her about health equity, financial mobility, um, food insecurities, housing. She's done so much in this space. So I really ask everyone who's listening to, to, to you know, look her up and then try to model some of those programs that she did in the organizations to help in this space as well. And her name again? Sure. Uh, Thea, T-H-E-A, James, J-A-M-E-S, of course, doctor in Boston Medical Center. You put that in, trust me, you're going to get a plethora of information on her because she's she's truly amazing. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening to part one of our two-part series on the role of pharmacy in addressing health disparities in underserved populations. A special thank you to our guests, Drs. Vivian Johnson and Sebastian Hamilton, for joining us today. Before we go, I wanted to share some resources that ASHP has developed surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Be sure to visit the Inclusion Center at www.ashp.org forward slash DEI. This resource showcases our longstanding commitment to nurturing the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the pharmacy community and is a home for our vast collection of resources featuring real-world scenarios, best practices, and actionable steps pharmacists and others can use in their own practices to recognize and combat biases and disparities in care. Included are activities to promote self-awareness and practice tools designed to transform your awareness into action. 
Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time.